Chapter 1 of Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by William Jones, Bonita Springs, Florida. Triumphant Democracy by Andrew Carnegie. Chapter 1 The Republic. Quote, Methinks I see in my mind a noble and puissant nation rousing herself like a strong man after sleep and shaking her invincible vox. Methinks I see her as an eagle mewing her mighty youth and kindling her undazzled eyes at the full midday beam, purging and unsealing her long-abused sight at the fountain itself of heavenly radiance, while the whole noise of timorous and flocking birds, with those also that love the twilight, flutter about, amazed at what she means. Quote, Milton The old nations of the earth creep on at a snail's pace. The republic thunders past with the rush of the express. The United States the growth of a single century has already reached the foremost rank among nations and is destined soon to outdistance all others in the race. In population, in wealth, in annual savings, and in public credit, in freedom from debt, in agriculture and in manufactures, America already leads the civilized world. France, with her fertile plains and sunny skies, requires 260 years to grow two Frenchmen, where one grew before. Great Britain, whose rate of increase is greater than that of any other European nation, takes 70 years to double her population. The Republic has repeatedly doubled hers in 25 years, in 1831, Great Britain and Ireland contained 24 millions of people, and 50 years later, 1881, 34 millions. France increased during the same period from 32.5 to 37.5 millions. The Republic bounded from 13 to 50 millions. England gained 10, France 5, the United States, 37 millions. Thus the Republic, in one half century, added to her numbers as many as the present total population of France and more than the present population of the United Kingdom. Think of it. A Great Britain and Ireland called forth from the wilderness, as if by magic, in less than the span of a man's few days upon earth, almost as if the yawning earth to heaven a subterranean host had given. Truly, the Republic is the Minerva of nations. Full-armed, she has sprung from the brow of Jupiter Britain. The thirteen millions of Americans of 1830 have now increased to fifty-six millions, more English-speaking people than exist in all the world besides more than in the United Kingdom and all her colonies, even were the latter doubled in population. Startling as is this statement, 
it is tame in comparison with that which is to follow. In 1850, the total wealth of the United States was but $8,430,000,000, pounds, while that of the United Kingdom exceeded $22,500,000,000, pounds, or nearly three times that sum. Thirty short years suffice to reverse the positions of the respective countries. In 1882, the monarchy was possessed of a golden load of no less than 8,720 million sterling. Just pause a moment to see how this looks when strung out in cold figures. But do not try to realize what it means, for mortal man cannot conceive it. Herbert Spencer need not travel so far afield to reach the unknowable. He has it right here, under his very eyes. Let him try to know the import of this $43,600,000,000, pounds. It is impossible. But stupendous as this seems, it is exceeded by the wealth of the Republic, which in 1880 two years before, amounted to $48,950,000,000,000 pounds. What a mercy we write for 1880! For had we to give the wealth of one year later, another figure would have to be found and added to the interminable row. America's wealth today greatly exceeds 10,000 million sterling nor is this altogether due to her enormous agricultural resources, as may at first glance be thought. For all the world knows, she is first among nations in agriculture. It is largely attributable to her manufacturing industries, for, as all the world does not know, she, and not Great Britain, is also the greatest manufacturing country. In 1880, British manufacturers amounted in value to 818 million sterling, those of America to 1112 millions. Footnote. British returns do not include flour mills and sawmills, but 60 million sterling, a sum far beyond their possible value, have been allowed for these in the above estimate. End footnote nearly half as much as those of the whole of Europe, which amounted to 2,600 millions. Thus, although Great Britain manufactures for the whole world, and the Republic is only gaining year after year greater control of her own markets, Britain's manufacturers in 1880 were not two-thirds the value of those of the one-century-old Republic, which is not generally considered a manufacturing country at all. In the savings of nations, America also comes first, her annual savings of 210 million sterling, exceeding those of the United Kingdom by 56 millions, and those of France by 70 million sterling. The 50 million Americans of 1880 could have bought up the 140 millions of Russians, Austrians, and Spaniards or 
after purchasing wealthy France, could have had enough pocket money to acquire Denmark, Norway, Switzerland, and Greece. The Yankee Republican could even buy the home of his ancestors, the dear old home with all its exquisite beauty, historical associations, and glorious traditions which challenge our love and hold it captive. The cloud-capped towers of the gorgeous palaces, the solemn temples. I, every acre of Great Britain and Ireland could he buy and hold it as a pretty little isle of white to his great continent. And after doing this, he could turn round and pay off the entire national debt of that deeply indebted land, and yet not exhaust his fortune, the product of a single century. What will he not be able to do ere his second century closes? Already the nations which have played great parts in the world's history grow small in comparison. In a hundred years they will be as dwarfs, and two hundred mere pygmies to this giant. He, the gulliver of nations, they but Lilliputians, who may try to bind him with their spider threads in vain. The shipping of the Republic ranks next to that of the world's carrier, Britain. No other nation approaches her for second place. In 1880, the carrying power of Great Britain was 18 millions of tons. That of the Republic, 9 millions, being about one-half the motherland's commercial fleet. But more than that of France, Germany, Norway, Italy, and Spain combined, these being the five largest carrying powers of Europe after Britain. The Western Republic has more than four times the carrying capacity of its European sister France, and quite four times as much as Germany. Her ships earned nearly 20% of the total shipping earnings of the world in 1880. France and Germany each earned but a shade over 5%. The exports and imports of America are already equal to those of either of those countries, about 300 million sterling. Notwithstanding those facts, which are corroborated by Mulhall, and are known to be correct, the general impression is that the Republic, gigantic as she is on land, has very little footing upon the water. This is one of many popular delusions about the kin beyond sea. But while she is next to Britain herself as a maritime power, it is when we turn to her internal commerce, her carrying power on land, that she reverses positions with her great mother. The internal commerce of the United States exceeds the entire foreign commerce of Great Britain and Ireland, France, Germany, Russia, Holland, Austria, Hungary, and Belgium combined. For railway freight, over a 110 million sterling are annual paid, a greater sum than the railway freightage of Great Britain, France, and Italy collectively, and more than is earned by all the ships in the world, exclusive of America's own earnings from ships. The Pennsylvania Railroad System alone transports more tonnage than all Britain's merchant ships. In military and naval power, the Republic is at once the weakest and the strongest 
of nations. Her regular army consists of but 25,000 men scattered all over the continent in companies of 50 or a 100. Her navy, thank God, is as nothing. But 20 years ago, as at the blast of a trumpet, she called into action two millions of armed men and floated 626 warships. Even the vaunted legions of Xerxes and the hordes of Attila and Timor were exceeded in numbers by the citizen soldiers who took up arms in 1861 to defend the unity of the nation, and who, when the task was done, laid them quietly down and returned to the avocations of peace. As Macaulay says of the soldiers of the Commonwealth, quote, in a few months there remained not a trace indicating that the most formidable army in the world had just been absorbed into the mass of the community. And the character of the Republic soldiers, too, recalls his account of this Republican army of Cromwell's. Quote, the Royalists themselves confessed in every department of honest industry the discarded warriors prospered beyond other men, that none was charged with any theft or robbery, that none was heard to ask for alms, and that if a baker, a mason, or a wagoner attracted notice by his diligence and sobriety, he was, in all probability, one of Oliver's old soldiers. This was when the parent land was free from hereditary rulers and under the invigorating influence of republican institutions. Thus do citizens fight on one side of the Atlantic as on the other, and grander far thus return to the pursuits of peace. Not for throne, for king, or for privileged class, but for country. For a country which gives to the humblest every privilege according to the greatest, one says instinctively, where's the coward that would not dare to fight for such a land? Britain, as Republicans, were of course invincible. What chance in the struggle has a royalist who cries, my king, against the citizen whose patriotic ardor glows as he whispers, my country? The god, save the king, of the monarchist grows faint before the nobler strain of the republican, God bless our native land. Our king, poor trifler, may be beneath consideration. Our country is ever sure of our love. There would be words to conjure and work miracles with, and our country is of these. Others having ceased to be divine, have become ridiculous, and king and throne are of these. The 27,000 Englishmen who met in Bingley Hall, Birmingham, to honor the sturdiest Englishman of all, John Bright, dispersed not with the paltry and puerile God save the Queen, but with these glorious words sung to the same tune, quote, God bless our native land, May heaven's protective hand still guard her shore. May peace her fame extend, full be transformed to friend, and Britain's power depend on war no more. Close quote. 
worthy this of England, blessed mother of nations, which now are, and of others yet to be. To hear it was worth the voyage across the Atlantic. Never crept the thrill of triumph more wildly through my frame than when I lifted up my voice and sang with the exulting mass the coming national hymn, which is to live and vibrate round the world when royal families are as extinct as dodos. God speed the day. A royal family is an insult to every other family in the land. I found no trace of them at Birmingham. The Republic wants neither standing army nor navy. In this lies her chief glory and her strength, resting securely upon the love and devotion of all her sons, she can, Cadmus-like, raise from the soil vast armed hosts who fight only in her defense, and who, unlike the seed of the dragon, return to the avocations of peace when danger to the Republic is past. The American citizen who will not fight for his country, if attacked, is unworthy of the name, and the American citizen who could be induced to engage in aggressive warfare is equally so. Happily, there is no such man. Of more importance even than commercial or military strength is the Republic's commanding position among nations intellectual activity. For she excels in the number of schools and colleges, in the number and extent of her libraries, and in the number of newspapers and other periodicals published. In the application of science to social and industrial uses, she is far in advance of other nations. Many of the most important practical inventions which have contributed to the progress of the world during the past century originated with Americans. No other people have devised so many labor-saving machines and appliances. The first commercially successful steamboat navigated the Hudson, and the first steamship to cross the Atlantic sailed under the American flag from an American port. America gave to the world the cotton gin, and the first practical mowing, reaping, and sewing machines. In the most spiritual, most ethereal of all departments in which man has produced great triumphs, viz. electricity, the position of the American is specially noteworthy. He may be said almost to have made this province his own, for, beginning with Franklin's discovery of the identity of lightning and electricity, it was an American who devised the best and most widely used system of telegraphy, and an American who boldly undertook to bind together the old and the new land with electric chains. In the use of electricity for illuminating purposes, America maintains her position as first wherever this subtle agent is invoked. The recent addition to the world's means of communication, the telephone, is also to be credited to the new land. Into the distant future of this giant nation we need not seek to peer, but if we cast a glance forward, as we have done backward, for only fifty years, and assume that in this short interval no serious change will occur, the astounding fact startles us that in 1935, fifty years from now, when many in manhood 
we'll still be living one hundred and eighty millions of english-speaking republicans will exist under one flag and possess more than two hundred and fifty thousand millions of dollars or fifty thousand millions sterling of national wealth eighty years ago the whole of america and europe did not contain so many people and if europe and america continue their normal growth it will be little more than another eighty years ere the mighty republic may boast as many loyal citizens as all the rulers of europe combined for before the year nineteen eighty europe and america will each have a population of about six hundred millions the causes which have led to the rapid growth and aggrandizement of this latest addition to the family of nations constitute one of the most interesting problems in the social history of mankind what has brought about such stupendous results so unparalleled a development of a nation within so brief a period the most important factors in this problem are three the ethnic character of the people the topographical and climatic conditions under which they developed and the influence of political institutions founded upon the equality of the citizen certain writers in the past have maintained that the ethnic type of a people has less influence upon its growth as a nation than the conditions of life under which it is developing the modern ethnologist knows better we have only to imagine what america would be today if she had fallen in the beginning into the hands of any other people than the colonizing british to see how vitally important is this question of race america was indeed fortunate in the seed planted upon her soil with the exception of a few dutch and french it was wholly british and as will be shown in the next chapter the american of today remains true to this noble strain and is four-fifths british the special aptitude of this race for colonization its vigor and enterprise and its capacity for governing although brilliantly manifested in all parts of the world have never been shown to such advantage as in america freed here from the pressure of feudal institutions no longer fitted to the present development and freed also from the dominion of the upper classes which have kept the people at home from effective management of affairs and sacrificed the nation's interest for their own as is the nature of classes these masses of the lower ranks of britons called upon to found a new state have proved themselves possessors of a positive genius for political administration the second and perhaps equally important factor in the problem of the rapid advancement of this branch of the british race is the superiority of the conditions under which it has developed the home which has fallen to its lot a domain more magnificent than has cradled any other race in the history of the world presents no obstructions to unity to the thorough amalgamation of its dwellers north south east and west into one homogeneous mass for the conformation of the american continent differs in important respects from that of every other great division of the globe in europe 
the Alps occupy a central position, forming on each side watersheds of rivers which flow into opposite seas. In Asia, the Himalaya and Hindu Kush and the Altai Mountains divide the continent, rolling from their sides many great rivers which pour their floods into widely separated oceans. But in North America, the mountains rise up on each coast, and from them the land slopes gradually into great central plains, forming an immense basin where the rivers flow together in one valley, offering to commerce many thousand miles of navigable streams. The map thus proclaims the unity of North America, for in this great central basin, three million square miles in extent, free from impassable rivers or mountain barriers great enough to hinder free intercourse, political integration is a necessity and consolidation a certainty. Herbert Spencer has illustrated by numerous examples the principle that mountain-haunting peoples and peoples living in deserts and marshes are difficult to consolidate, while peoples pinned in by barriers are consolidated with facility. Nations so separated, moreover, regard those beyond the barrier as natural enemies, and in Europe the ambition and selfishness of ruling dynasties have helped to make this belief the political creed of the people. Cowper has seized upon this idea in the well-known lines, quote, Mountains interposed make enemies of nations who had else like kindred drops been mingled into one, close quote. Europe has thus been kept in a state of perpetual war or preparation for war among some of its several divisions, entailing such misery and loss of life as well as of material wealth and retarding civilization. Besides the rivers, the great lakes of America, estimated to contain one-third of all the fresh water in the world, are another important element in aid of consolidation. A ship sailing from any part of the world may discharge its cargo at Chicago in the northwest, a thousand miles inland. The Mississippi and its tributaries traverse the great western basin, a million and a quarter square miles in extent, and furnish an internal navigable system of 20,000 miles. A steamer starting from Pittsburgh in Pennsylvania, 450 miles inland from New York, and 2,000 from the mouth of the Mississippi, passing through these waterways and returning to its starting place at that smoky metropolis of iron and steel, will sail a distance much greater than round the world. Nor will it, in all its course, be stopped by any government official, be taxed by any tariff, the flag it carries will ensure free passage for ship and cargo, unimpeded by any fiscal charge whatever, for the whole continent enjoys the blessing of absolute freedom of intercourse among its citizens. In estimating the influences which promote the consolidation of the people, much weight must be given to this cause. Fifty millions of people occupying an area which includes Climatic differences so great that everything necessary for the wants of man can be readily produced, exchange their products without inspection or charge. Truly, 
Here is the most magnificent exhibition of free trade which the world has ever seen. It would be difficult to set bounds to the beneficial effects of the wise provision of the national constitution which guarantees to every member of the vast confederacy the blessings of unrestricted commercial intercourse, not only from an economical point of view, but from the higher standpoint of its bearing upon the unity and brotherhood of the people, this unrestricted freedom of trade must rank as one of the most potent agencies for the preservation of the Union. Were each of the thirty-eight states of the American continent to tax the products of others, we should soon see the dissolution of the great republic into thirty-eight warring factions. If anyone doubts that free trade carries peace in its train, let him study the internal free trade system in America. The railway system, although an artificial creation, must rank as even more important than the great natural waterways, in its influence upon the unification of the people. A hundred and thirty thousand miles of railways, more than in the whole of Europe, traverse the country in all directions, and bind the nation together with bonds of steel. From the Atlantic to the Pacific, three thousand miles apart, or from New York to New Orleans, the traveler passes without change in the same moving hotel. In it he is fed, lodged, and has every want supplied. 760,000 miles of telegraph, enough to put 30 girdles around the earth, the very nerves of the Republic quiver night and day with social and commercial messages. The college-bred youth of Massachusetts is not separated from the paternal home and its associations when on his ranch in Colorado, nor is the eastern young lady removed from the home influences of New York when she marries the southern planter and goes forth to create a similar home in Texas. Constant communication between the families and frequent visits animate them with kindred ideas and keep them united. They carry the stars and stripes with them wherever they settle and preserve the unity of the nation. In the course of her short career, the Republic has had to face and overcome two sources of great danger, either of which might have overtaxed the wisdom and courage of any political fabric resting upon a less wide and indestructible base than the perfect equality of the citizen. The infant state was left with the viper, human slavery, gnawing at its vitals, and it grew and strengthened with the growth and strength of the republic until sufficiently powerful to threaten its very life, coiled round and into every joint and part of the body politic, and sucking away the moral strength of the nation, the slave power, in an effort to extend its baneful influence, fortunately committed one morning what is in the soul of every American the one unpardonable sin. It fired upon the flag. Blessed shot! for it was required to bring home to the national conscience the knowledge that not only were freedom and slavery antagonistic social forces which could never be joined, but that slavery as a political institution was inconsistent with the republican idea. 
the shot fired that bright sunny morning at the ensign floating like a thing of joy over the ramparts of fort sumter left the patriots no recourse a thrill passed through the free states and once again for unity as before for independence men of all parties pledged their lives their fortunes and their sacred honor to uphold the republic how nobly that pledge was redeemed is known to the world not only until every slave was free but not until every slave was a citizen with equal voice in the state was the righteous sword of the republic sheathed the second source of danger lay in the millions of foreigners who came from all lands to the hospitable shores of the nation many of them ignorant of the english language and all unaccustomed to the exercise of political duties if so great a number stood aloof from the national life and formed circles of their own or if they sought america for a period only to earn money with which to return to their original homes the entry to the state must inevitably be serious the generosity shall i not say the incredible generosity with which the public has dealt with these people met its reward they are won to her side by being offered for their subjectship the boon of citizenship for denial of equal privileges at home the new land meets them with perfect equality saying be not only with us but be of us they reach the shores of the republic subjects an insulting word and she makes them citizens serfs and she makes them men and their children she takes gently by the hand and leads to the public schools which she has founded for her own children and gives them without money and without price a good primary education as the most precious gift which even she has in her bountiful hand to bestow upon human beings this is democracy's gift of welcome to the newcomer the poor immigrant cannot help growing up passionately fond of his new home and alas with many bitter thoughts of the old land which has defrauded him of the rights of man and thus the threatened danger is averted the homogeneity of the people secured the unity of the american people is further powerfully promoted by the foundation upon which the political structure rests the equality of the citizen there is not one shred of privilege to be met with anywhere in all the laws one man's right is every man's right the flag is the guarantor and symbol of equality the people are not emasculated by being made to feel that their own country decrees their inferiority and holds them unworthy of privileges according to others no ranks no titles no hereditary dignities and therefore no classes suffrage is universal and votes are of equal weight representatives are paid and political life and usefulness thereby thrown open to all thus there is brought about a community of interests and aims which a briton accustomed to monarchical and aristocratic institutions dividing the people into classes with separate interests aims thoughts and feelings can only with difficulty understand the free common school system of the land is probably after all 
the greatest single power in the unifying process which is producing the new American race. Through the crucible of a good common English education, furnished free by the state, past the various racial elements, children of Irishmen, Germans, Italians, Spaniards, and Swedes, side by side with the Native American, all to be fused into one in language, in thought, in feeling, and in patriotism. The Irish boy loses his brogue, and the German child learns English. The sympathies suited to the feudal systems of Europe, which they inherit from their fathers, pass off as dross, leaving behind the pure gold of the only noble political creed, all men are created free and equal, taught how to live and work for the common weal, and not for the maintenance of a royal family or an overbearing aristocracy, not for the continuance of a social system which ranks them beneath an arrogant class of drones, children of Russian and German serfs, of Irish evicted tenants, Scotch crofters, and other victims of feudal tyranny, are transmuted into Republican Americans, and are made one in love for a country which provides equal rights and privileges for all her children. There is no class so intently patriotic, so wildly devoted to the Republic, as the naturalized citizen and his child, for little does the native-born citizen know of the value of rights which have never been denied. Only the man born abroad, like myself, under institutions which insult him at his birth, can know the full meaning of republicanism. It follows from the prevailing system of free education that the Americans are a reading people. Arising out of this fact, we find another powerful influence promoting unity of sentiment and purpose among the millions of the republic, the influence of the American press. Eight thousand newspapers scattered throughout the land receive simultaneous reports. Everybody in America reads the same news the same morning and discusses the same questions. The man of San Francisco is thus brought as near to a common center with his fellow citizen of St. Paul, New Orleans, or New York, as is the man of London with him of Birmingham, Manchester, Liverpool, or Edinburgh, and infinitely nearer than the men of Belfast or Dublin. The bullet of the lunatic which killed President Garfield, could it have traveled so far, would have been outstripped by the lightning messengers which carried the sad news to the most distant hamlet upon the continent. The blow struck in the afternoon found a nation of fifty-six millions bowed with grief ere sunset. So, too, the quiet intimation conveyed one evening by Secretary Seward to the Minister of France that he thought Mexico was a very healthy country for the French to migrate from, called forth at every breakfast table the next morning the emphatic response, I rather guess that's so. Fortunately, the Emperor was of the same opinion. It is these causes which render possible the growth of a great homogeneous nation alike in race, language, literature, interest, patriotism, an empire of such overwhelming power and proportions as to require neither army nor navy to ensure its safety, 
and a people so educated and advanced as to value the victories of peace. The student of American affairs today sees no influences at work save those which make for closer and closer union. The Republic has solved the problem of governing large areas by adopting the federal or home rule system, and has proved to the world that the freest self-government of the parts produces the strongest government of the whole. End of chapter 1 the Republic.